can compete with the top minds in the world if you're willing to armor and callous your fucking mind and outwork them motherfuckers and dig deep. Welcome to the 200th episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Today, we're going to be looking back at some of our most memorable guests, behind the scenes stories, and much, much more. When most people see four walls, I see a massive empty space that deserves all kind of creativity to make it look beautiful. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at some of our most iconic guests and game-changing moments for the podcast so far. From episode one to episode 199, this episode features insights and stories from our most iconic guests to date. There is no gentle way to cut off somebody's head Unless you're trying to cut it off nicely, then it's going to be torture. What do you do after that? Have a game plan laid out. People want a way forward. They want to know what the truth is. They appreciate straight shooters. What's a straight shooter? A straight shooter is somebody who tells the truth in an emotionally intelligent way. They don't let people twist in the wind. They don't torture people in the guise of being nice. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. The first guest in the very first episode of this podcast was John Morgan, founder and CEO of America's largest injury law firm. You know, interesting story on this one. So we're in Atlanta and John was in Hawaii at the time. So we shipped him a podcast mic only to find out that he didn't have anything to plug it into. No computer, no laptop. And as it turned out, John was running his law firm at the time from his iPad. So we overnighted him a laptop to make this podcast happen. And during our conversation, John shared his thoughts on why you can't teach hungry and the differences between lions and sloths. I believe that it goes back to life is luck. I believe I'm the way I was because I was born this way. Warren Buffett was born that way. He was a paper boy. I'll bet you, you were very entrepreneurial as a kid. I believe you had something going. Now, in my generation, we were all paper boys. The people who were paper boys were the guys, because I'll meet people. And I go, hey, were you a paper boy? They go, yeah, why? I just wondering. Because I was born that way. I was born. I didn't. And by the way, being a paper boy is hard. It's seven days a week. It's rain. It's snow. It was in Kentucky. And you have to get up and you got to collect money. And sometimes they don't pay you money. When they didn't pay me money, I would go back and egg their houses later that night when they wouldn't, wouldn't pay me. But I was born that way. Some people 
are not born that way. And it doesn't matter rich or poor. Oprah was a paper girl. Christy Brinkley was a paper girl. Jack Welch was a paper boy. He was born that way. Warren Buffett calls it winning the ovarian lottery. And this goes back to life is luck. You know, I'm lucky that I was born to be a paper boy. That I always wanted to have money and my own money. And so when I look at it all, I think it's a lot is genetic. And then I was born in America. And then life can be unlucky that turns out to be the best luck. I was in Kentucky. I love being in Kentucky. I was all my friends are when I go back to Kentucky now, my my little league tiger team all gets together and play. We my Christ the King reunions coming up and we're going to have the the thing at my son's bourbon bar in Lexington. But then I had to leave Kentucky because my dad lost his job and I left everything and I cried all the way to the airport. I got on my first ride and I went to Florida and then I realized, boy, we really are poor people because look where we're living. All of a sudden you're like, holy shit, I am poor. I am desperate. But my dad bought a house in one section of town instead of the other. Same exact house, but I was a better neighborhood. And then I got in that school district, and that school district made me better and smarter. And then I got to be around rich people, and I got to see what they were doing. And then I got to go to the University of Florida. But almost none of that luck had anything to do with me. And when you realize that, again, like I say, you quit patting yourself on the on the back and then just try to start getting a better return on luck. So it's interesting you, you mentioned luck and, and I, I certainly agree with you, but there's a, a part of this when you mentioned that that phone call at three o'clock in the morning. A lot of this is also you're taking very, very committed action. I mean, in a way, it's almost like I would equate luck with gratitude, like realizing how much there is to be grateful for and then not wanting to squander any opportunity. Well, that's right. You see, the reason, the name of that book that you got there, you can't teach hungry. You can't. You, you can't teach hungry. It's just there. It's lucky. But the thing that irritates me about people is they want to. They'll say, "Well, you know, well, by God, you got up out of the bed at three o'clock in the morning and you went and did it. You know, by God, you did it." But I was built that way. They go, yeah, but you did it. You actually did the work. Well, yeah, but some people aren't capable of it. And you say, well, yeah, yeah, they are. No, they're not. We're animals. We're no different than animals in the jungle. In the jungle today, a lion will be born. And that lion is the king of the jungle just because he or she is a lion. The same day, a sloth will be born. Okay? Same day, same jungle, same deal. That sloth is so fucked you can't even describe it because he's a sloth. All he can do is barely muster up enough energy to come down the tree, grab some berries, go to the bathroom and go back up and go to sleep. There's two different mules. There's the hardworking mule and there's the stubborn mule. They're just built that they cannot get up. I'm lucky that I was a lion instead of the sloth. And I'm lucky that I got the genes to be the hardworking mule that'll get up in the snow. And by the way, once I got through with the paper route, I went and shoveled snow. You know, I wasn't done. I didn't go back. I mean, I went to the, I went to the toddle house and got some bacon and eggs, but then I was back out shoveling snow because the day wasn't over, but that's how I was built. 
And so that gives you such a great advantage. And it's totally out of Shaquille O'Neal cannot be Shaquille if he's not seven foot three. If he's built like me, he's like the fucking sloth. He's fucked. You mentioned before we started that nothing was off limits. So I got to ask this question uh, because this is an exercise I do to myself a lot. And it's if you were your own competitor, let's say like you start another law firm, you've got to compete against Morgan and Morgan. What could a competitor do to, to wipe you out? I don't think anybody could wipe me out. I don't think anybody works harder than me. I don't think anybody has the imagination that I have. Look, there was never a lo- there was nobody on the back of phone books until me. They were free. It used to be just a calendar. But before I went to law school, I sold yellow pages and I thought, you know, that'd be the place I'd rather be because that's a 50-50 chance of just being found right there. So I sort of bought up them. There was no lawyers on billboards until me. There was no lawyers on buses until me. There was no lawyers on, I don't think anybody could ever put me out of business. The only person could put me out of business would be me by doing something stupid, or crazy, or just shut there, just saying, hey, I'm done. People could put a gigantic dent in my business by doing some of the things I do, but they could never put me out of business. Only I could put myself out of business. I believe that at this writing, I'm the greatest legal marketer in the history of legal marketing. We're going to do almost a billion dollars in fees this year. We spend $150 million in advertising. So to totally put me out of business would be hard. Only I can hurt myself. Yeah, that's the right answer. I think we all get to a certain point and really it's, you know, it's you against you and then being smart in, in terms of how we behave, how we manage our business, you know, how we manage ourselves personally, because you're right. I mean, at that point, it is just you. I, I'm a, I'm a, I am my own competition. And what I'm doing with my Google law firm is I'm bringing in all sorts of people and friends all over America. I mean, there's a firm in Boston, you know, I probably send them 200, 300 cases a month. I send, I send Sam Pond two or 300 cases a month. And I'm lucky because I don't ever, I've never thought of these lawyers as my competition. I've always thought of them as my friends and people who can make me better and ways for me to collaborate and do better with. I am my own competition. And when the drive is dead, when my drive is finally dead, that'll be the time that they have a chance to to make inroads with me. But right now, I still want to increase. I still want to grow. I still want to do better. In episode five, I sat down with Chris Voss, former FBI hostage negotiator, founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group, and the best-selling author of Never Split the Difference. Chris shared his strategies for delivering bad news, who can and cannot be reasoned with, as well as his insights on the mindset of discovery. First of all, the mindset of discovery is actually, it's a hack for you. It's basically a positive frame of mind, and it's curious. And you can actually take in more information. You see things faster when you're in that mindset. You pull in more data. Your pattern recognition increases all the things that go to higher mental performance. So first of all, if you have a mindset of discovery, you're going to be smarter, probably at least 31% smarter, which is enough of an edge that if you're interested in edges, you're going to want it. Then the other thing too is, by definition, it's an asymmetric world. It's an imperfect world. We know we don't have all the information, yet we act like we do. 
you know, there's never a negotiation where you're not holding stuff, close hold, holding stuff to the vest. There's never a time when you don't have cards that you're holding back. Well, if you're not doing that, then that means they get the same dynamic. So we intellectually know there's stuff that we don't know. Now, the crazy thing to really bend your mind around is what happens in the overlap. Because not only, since I don't know what they don't know, you know, the Donald Rumsfeld line, the unknown unknowns, but what's really sweet is when you hit the overlap and between the two of you, you discover stuff that if you're holding it back, it's important, which means you're going to get an exponential effect if you can uh, uncover it. Now, I imagine there's, there's people that, are there people that can't be negotiated or reasoned with? It's not that they can't be reasoned with. It's a little bit of what journey are they on? To begin with, how scared are they? What's really the goal? Like in, you know, in kidnapping negotiations, we had to recognize early on whether or not the goal was to actually kill the hostage. You know, the other side's on a killing journey. And so you got to, they want you to be part of that. The best you could do is get out of the journey. If the best thing you could do is to disrupt, then you simply withdraw. So that's something like asocial violence, essentially. Right. So somebody walks into a, a movie theater, starts shooting up everyone. That, that's not a person interested in having negotiation. Right, right. Or they're, trying, they're orchestrating a different outcome. Right. So in a business world, you, you don't really get that. But what you get is you get people that are so scared of the environment. And this has happened in the healthcare space a lot these days. They're so scared of making any deal, they'll come to the table and all they do is call names. All they, all they are is insulting. They're overwhelmingly fear-driven. Now, you can get people out of that, but you got to recognize that that's what's driving them. And then you got to find a way to really gently help them see that what they're doing is actually counterproductive to where they say they're trying to go. When do you know when a negotiation is a lost cause? Like, how, how do you know when to walk away? Yeah, there's, a, there's an old saying, it's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. So how do you know if you're the fool in the game? Actually, you just kind of ask, what kind of questions do you ask? You know, how have you done this in the past? How do you make decisions? What does your perfect partner look like? You know, these are, these are how and what questions. They're innocuous. Mm -hmm. You're trying to tease out the other side's vision from them. They might be using you just as a competing bid. They might simply be trying to get free consulting from you. Those two things are real common. In point of fact, it probably happens at least 20% of the time that the other side is never going to do business with you. They're either they're doing due diligence, which means you're a competing bid, or they're looking for free consulting. So your questions are, if you proceed forward, what would that look like? With deference, they're, they're going to actually start to answer the question for you. You'll find in a way that doesn't include you. Well, if we were going to move forward and we were going to find a firm, blah, 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 they start laying it out. Now, they'll probably catch themselves about halfway through the explanation and suddenly realize they're describing an outcome that doesn't include you. And then they'll suddenly course correct, which is a great indicator that they caught themselves lying to you and they found, and they, <laughs> I've had that happen to me a bunch of times. So the idea, though, is how do you tease out early on in a very polite way? whether or not their vision of moving forward includes you. I, I imagine that, you know, I'm going to ask you in terms of delivering news. Now, no one has a problem delivering good news. It, it seems <laughs> like there's not a whole lot of training out there to deliver good news to people. 
But delivering bad news is something that we all have to do at some point in our life, probably multiple times. Right, right. And what is the best way to approach that? Two real quick critical things. The right way to do it is you say, I got bad news. You wait about a second and you deliver the news. Never let somebody get blindsided by bad news. They need about a second to prep themselves, no matter how bad the news is. I got bad news. Now, if you wait longer than a second, now they really start to spin down. You know, you don't go, oh, you're not gonna like this, are you sitting down, all that nonsense. People are remarkably resilient if you give them a second to brace themselves. So that's the way you deliver bad news. Now, the other part that a lot of people do wrong is before they deliver bad news, they want to say, how are you? That is not the way to do it for a lot of reasons. Number one, if you ask someone that, and, and, and I understand it could be very well-intentioned, but if you're going to deliver bad news and you got to ask them how they are, that either means you're ignorant or you're oblivious to the current situation. If I say to you, how are you? Your first thought is, especially if we're in an environment where you should be delivering me bad news, your thought is going to be, you don't know? Like, how could we be this far into this and you have no idea how I am? I mean, it, it's a very well-intentioned thing that communicates that you might be oblivious. So if you know somebody's bad, if you know they're not doing well, then start off by saying like, look, I know things are rough for you right now. That's a recognition that you see them, that you're not oblivious and that you, you care enough to actually notice and you're not, not afraid to articulate it. Empathy. Exactly. Uh, as opposed to being oblivious. You know, the funny thing is, I know so many stories where employees were about to get fired. They knew they were about to get fired. And the person firing them started out by saying, how are you? I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, it's well-intentioned, but it's off base. So the better approach is coming in and saying, got some bad news. Got bad news. Today's your last day at our, at our organization. That would be perfect. They're not going to be shocked. They're going to appreciate the warning. They're going to appreciate the fact that you then didn't hold them and let them twist in the wind for a long period of time. Give people the chance to be emotionally resilient, and they will be. Now, what about what comes after that? Because I've seen certain, you know, business owners really struggle where it becomes, and even, even if I look back at myself, where because you have that level of empathy, what could be a five-minute meeting turns into an hour meeting because it's almost like you're trying to soften it for them. Right. Yeah, and that attempt to soften it is well-intentioned, but torturous. You rip the Band-Aid off. Just because you don't want it to hurt doesn't mean you should rip it off more slowly. You know, the most humane thing to do is to let them have it. Don't let them twist in the wind. You cannot soften a blow. There is no gentle way to cut off somebody's head unless you're trying to cut it off nicely, then it's going to be torture. What do you do after that? Have a game plan laid out. They're going to be in a little bit of a state of shock. You're going to say, here's how, here's how we're going to proceed. There are a couple of immediate concerns that they're going to have. You got to give things a chance to sink in and then you begin to address the immediate concerns. People want a way forward. They want to know what the truth is. They appreciate straight shooters. What's a straight shooter? 
A straight shooter is somebody who tells the truth in an emotionally intelligent way. They don't let people twist in the wind. They don't torture people in the guise of being nice. In episode 47 of this podcast, I sat down with Jessica Mogul, seasoned business leader, head of coaching strategy at Crisp, and yes, she also happens to be my wife and the mother of our two amazing girls. Jessica is someone who prefers to be behind the scenes at Crisp, so it took nearly a year of me convincing her to come on this podcast, but I think you'll agree it was worth the wait. So whatever is established at your company, your firm, you've established that. If you are the CEO, if you are the owner, you have endorse that. You know, the other day I heard a great quote, you endorse what you tolerate. And if somebody is consistently late and you're like, oh, it's okay, it's okay, you're endorsing that. And the rest of the team sees that. And the biggest thing, you know, I really always focus on culture, people, processes, but your A players do not want to be around mediocre people. They just don't. It actually will deter them and push them away. I find that ego plays a large role in driving any type of organizational change because there was a time where I felt that the things that I wasn't good at, it was important for me to get good at them. I mean, there's there's business fundamentals, I think, across the board. Like, you know, if you're going to grow any organization to any level of scale, you will need organizational processes, SOPs, KPIs, all these different things that are necessary for a business to grow and scale. Yet, if that's not something that is your strength, Rather than focusing on how do I develop this weakness, lean into the things that you love and are your strengths and instead find people like yourself. Yeah. And I think it's also people, you know, when I say people like myself, I'm a very, very structured person. Michael's not kidding. It took a very long time to get me on this podcast. Uh, So anything that's kind of outside of my norm, I uh, really have to think about that. I have to process that. And what's interesting, though, is in this position, you have to be okay being uncomfortable. So especially you're working with a visionary CEO, you can't be entirely stuck in your ways. I actually remember When I say there were no processes, Michael at this time was making every single sale and uh, 1-800 number rings. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you do? Like, how do we replicate this? And we didn't have an answer. So I made a process and then I hand Michael this beautifully packaged up process. And I said, okay, great. So here's your process. You can do something and we, we can test it or something. And he goes, great. Uh, you're going to shift the 1-800 number to you and you're going to test the sales process. And I said, great. So that's how I learned to do sales at Crisp was because I was pushed outside of my comfort zone. But I think that's really important because you can't really grow within the company without pushing yourself to those limits. Yeah, I I remember even the time where not only do we not have a hiring process, which I mean, now it's amazing. We teach on the hiring process that we have now. Um, we didn't have a formal onboarding or training and development process or even curriculum, any of those things. And I was getting frustrated. I'm like, why are these people not working out? And I mean, it's hundred percent my fault because number one, we weren't vetting them properly on the front end because there was no hiring process. And then once they were hired, how are we training and developing them to be successful in their role? And there was no training and development structure. It's, it's kind of ironic in the sense that everything we do now on the coaching side of the business and we work with law firms is based on all the lessons that we've learned. But what's so fascinating to me looking back is that I love business. I'm, I'm obsessed with it in the sense that I was reading the business books. I was going to the business conferences. I knew the importance of having these processes or these KPIs or formal onboarding or training and development. Like I knew these things, you didn't have to convince me of them. And yet 
despite reading all those books, you never really truly understand that the most important thing instead could be from a leverage standpoint, how does this actually get done? We talk to law firms about this all the time. When we ask them, like, how many of you know, you know, if you need systems and processes in your organization, every hand goes up. And then you ask, well, how many of you actually have clearly defined every single process in your organization? And like one, two hands go up and then half of them are, you know, are being dishonest. And at some point learning more about what the process to create isn't going to help you create the process. And the reality is you're never going to do it. You know, never, ever, ever, ever going to do it. Prove me wrong. But instead, the shortcut is find somebody who loves processes and is operationally minded. And just I'm sure there's going to be people listening to this that are wondering, OK, I've heard enough. Where do I find me, Jessica? That's a great question. I've actually become, I think, a, what is that, a noun now, a Jessica, finding a Jessica. So again, I never planned to be here as long as I am. And honestly, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. But it's interesting when you say that about asking for owners. I was talking to a client this morning and he has a workshop coming up. And I said, great, have you blocked out your day that you get back to sit down with your right hand and go through everything? And he's like, oh, let me do that right now because he knows he knows he will go back and nothing will get done without this person who is going to actually execute. And so there will be an interesting transition in this conversation because we're also married. And so how do you find a Jessica? Oh, this could go on forever. <laughs> so the interesting thing is, is, of course, we trust each other immensely. Uh, so there's that side of things. And then you really have to find someone, though, again, like I said, they have to be okay being number two, being behind the scenes, being the operational person, and honestly, someone who is okay challenging you. I think that is a big thing that we've seen with a lot of people who come in from a leadership perspective is having that confidence to challenge you and that person, any visionary, because it's very easy for a visionary to say, oh, I've got all these ideas, let's run with them. And so I would say one of my biggest strengths though is actually being able to poke holes in things. And so being able to say, no, this is not good. Or what if this happens? And I know all you visionaries are probably thinking, no, those people are going to slow me down. Those people are going to be so defensive and they're going to, you know, not want to make any progress. And it is not defensiveness. I just look at every scenario that could go wrong before we implement. I'm not saying don't do it. I just want to have every potential, you know, cage <laughs> barrier everywhere to protect it. You know, I will say this to our credit. I believe we've done a very good job of this over the years in the sense that at the office, unless you were explicitly told and I mean, you, you learn that we are married many times, I think you can go weeks or months without knowing that, you know, we're even together. And I think that stems from the fact that at the business it's and in the office, it's business. 100 percent. You are harder on me than any person here. And I think that it should be that way. I don't want special treatment. I don't think that I deserve special treatment. Uh, it is funny that you say that, especially when we were a lot smaller, also before I was a mogul, it was not so obvious, of course, that we were together. But a team back when there were probably 10, 15 people, they actually filmed a video while Michael and I were on vacation and interviewed each person and asked how they found out <laughs> that we were actually together. It was hilarious, the stories, though. I mean, people literally had no idea for months that we were together because that separation and that professionalism has to be there. That's something I've always been very wary about, too, having trained so many offices. If the significant other was you know, involved in the practice, 
I've seen it go both ways. And I have always made a very conscious effort to not just be, you know, oh, well, that's Michael's wife and, you know, she gets her way or anything. No, you're harder on me than any person here. So I've seen this when people have, let's say they're in the business with their spouse. I've seen it have disastrous effects, like disastrous. I've seen relationships not only deteriorate, but end over it. It's not even just them, let's say, working together. Sometimes it's just you have the person, let's say, the CEO of the firm, and then you've got the husband or wife that's at home. Let's say there's a different career path, but it's like them not knowing what they signed up for when you're in a relationship like that. And I've seen people try to make it work because you know they'll hear about, well, let me bring my, my husband into the business, let me bring my wife into the business. I would say that, you know, from the onset, I think look back even to the first date, because I remember we had this conversation. It was having complete clarity of like who I am and what you're signing up for and saying, hey, this is the out, because the worst thing is to, you know, to figure this out years later once you're married and have kids. Oh, yeah. So I will say that is something from the very beginning. There are even times now when you spit out some crazy idea and you're like, are you, you cool with this? And literally my answer every time is I know what I signed up for. So I, I know exactly how ambitious it's going to be, how crazy it's going to be. But that alignment from the very beginning could not be more important. And it's interesting too, when you say that about, you know, someone who maybe has a stay at home spouse, because that also can be very challenging. And that was one thing with us working together is like, We've never questioned late nights. We've never questioned how long, you know, someone's going to be there. And, and it doesn't just work on one way. I mean, there are nights where you've gone home and I'm still at the office, but we've we've never like challenged that or been like, where are you? Or, you know, we're, we're in it together and we know where we're going. In episode 72 of the podcast, I sat down with Mark Manson, New York Times bestselling author whose books have been translated into more than 60 languages and have sold over 13 million copies worldwide. His content can be described as self-help for people who hate self-help. And in fact, Mark believes that constantly striving for happiness in the face of life's challenges can be just as bad as being miserable all the time. And during our conversation, he shared some insights from his best-selling book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a... Well, you can figure it out. So the, the title is a bit of a Trojan horse. You know, it's like everybody's always stressed out these days. And so I think by putting not giving a fuck on the on the cover, it kind of tricks people into into reading this book that they think is going to make them chill out. But I mean, essentially, like what what not giving a fuck is or what the essentially the question of what do you give a fuck about? It's a question of values and priorities. And um, I, I strongly believe that the core question of our day and age is what is worth caring about or what is worth focusing on you know we're we live in an age where we are constantly overwhelmed with information and opportunity and so the biggest struggle for most of us is to figure out where to delegate our attention our limited time and attention like what is worth focusing on what is worth caring about and that's a, it's a really really hard thing to figure out and i think you know, five years ago when the when the book came out, I think people were very unaware that that struggle was going on within themselves. I think today people are generally aware that that is a struggle, but we, you know, as a culture, we still haven't really figured out how to tackle it. Yeah, and and you know, it's uh, I think there's a point in the book. I saw you post this recently on social media where you say that you can't be an important and life changing presence for some people without also being a joke and an embarrassment to others. Yeah. What What did you mean by that? <laughs> well, it, it's. Anything that is, is I think, 
kind of exceptional, any action or behavior that is exceptional is going to be polarizing in its responses. So if you're acting and behaving in a way to minimize conflict or confrontation, you're basically optimizing for doing nothing important (laughs) because anything important is going to have some sort of disagreement or like people are going to see it differently. And so the more you're optimizing for something that's important, the more you're going to polarize people's responses. And, and I think the reason that feels profound to me, at least is like, it's kind of an expectation. Like it's, there's a little bit of a narrative bias in that like we look back in history, right? Like we look at somebody like Winston Churchill or like Theodore Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln. And today with the benefit of 50 or hundred years of history, it's like, it is uncontroversial that what Churchill or Lincoln did is a positive thing. Like it is not really debatable by like 99% of people that what they did were positive things. But that's with the benefit of history. Like if you look at the decisions they made in and their their own time, they were highly controversial. People were extremely upset. There was lots of debate. Everybody was angry. And so I think we forget that. We forget that like there's pretty much never going to be that decision in your life that you were doing something both extremely important and extremely undivisive. The simple, like the really watered down version of it is just like, haters going to (laughs) hate. Yeah. Well, and look, and, and it's true. And, and, and coming back to this idea of happiness, I mean, because you, you confront it very early on. I mean, you say like this happiness stuff, it's, it's a problem. And, you know, a lot of people believe like if I could just eliminate my problems, then I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. Like I just, it's just this idea that uh, let's say, you know, whatever set of problems that somebody has, they resolve those things. And then in the absence of those problems, there's just joy and happiness. And I, I think there's a story that you share. Uh, and I love reading this, especially for the plot twist, right, with, of the Himalayan prince. Um, which is mm. a great way of depicting this. Um, if you're open to if you're open to sharing that, but I think that helps to give an idea of like really kind of the the root of happiness and perhaps the importance of suffering. Sure, I mean it's it's uh, you know this calls again right back to Eastern philosophy. I mean it's it's essentially it's the mythological story of the Buddha, you know, which is, and I think it's very profound the way that the Buddha's story is laid out traditionally, which is he's born a prince. All of his needs are fulfilled. His, his father is the king or the raja or the sultan or whatever they were called back then. Gives him everything, anything he wants, all the food, drink, party, music, whatever he wants. It's always provided for him. And he becomes a very deeply sad and unsatisfied person. And so he decides to go to the other extreme, which is he wants to limit or abstain from everything. So he decides to go be a beggar on the street because he... he he identifies that his, you know, having everything he wants is, is what's causing him to be unhappy. So if he figures like, well, if I just have nothing that I want, then I'll achieve enlightenment and feel happy or whatever. So he goes and lives in the street as a beggar. And he realizes that that sucks too. Like <laughs> there's, there's the same way you're, uh, you know, having everything you want, uh, just causes angst and stress in uh, wanting more, having nothing that you want causes angst and stress and wanting more. Um, and so I think kind of the, the profound insight from his story is essentially that it's whether you are abundant in something or lacking in something, it's, it's that attachment to that thing that is causing you the, to suffer, not, not the thing itself. I kind of modernize that in the book by talking about 
you know, framing it in terms of happiness, which is like, if you think that you're going to get rid of all your problems and that's going to make you happy, well, trying to get rid of all your problems is itself a problem. You know, getting rid of your problems and keeping your life so that it has no problems is itself a problem. You know, it's, it's any solution to a problem merely presents a new problem. Um, and so there's kind of this endless stream of problems in life. And our problem is not that we have problems. It's that we think that we shouldn't have them or, or that our expectation is that, you know, it's possible to live without problems. You know, the chapter is very much just a call to find problems you enjoy having, you know, like that's essentially what happiness is, is finding the struggle that enlivens you, makes you excited to get up in the morning, feels meaningful essentially because you're never going to get away from struggle. You're never going to get away from attachment and you're never going to get away from problems. So you might as well find the ones that feel as though they're worth suffering for. Yeah. And, and I know that you mentioned before that like when most people are asking, what do you want out of life? The, you know, the, the, probably a better question is what pain do you want in your life or what are you willing to, to struggle for? And I, cause that, I think it can yield a very different answer. You ask somebody, what do they want in life? They say, I want to be happy or there's this material thing or, or whatever it is. Um, but that's very nondescript. It's very ambiguous. Yeah. Well, and it, and it's like not interesting, <laughs> right? Like we all want the same stuff. Like we all want a nice house and a cool car and, uh, a great relationship and like tons of sex and money and fun and like a great family. Like we all want the same shit. Like there's nothing particularly interesting or unique about that. Um, the thing that makes us who we are is like what we're actually willing to sacrifice um, and what we enjoy sacrificing. Right. So like it, it's the reason I'm, I'm a, a writer is not because I like sold a bunch of books. The reason I'm a writer is because I enjoy sitting by myself for weeks and weeks and weeks and like rewriting the same page over and over and over again. You know, it's, it's the reason somebody's a lawyer is not necessarily because they went to law school. It's because it's, they thrive among the challenges that are required to, to do the legal profession well. So it's, it's not the thing that actually makes you a unique individual is what, what you're able to give up or what you're, what you enjoy essentially giving up. Cause we all, we all want the same good stuff. It's like, that's a given. And, and this kind of lends us to the fact that, you know, to achieve any of this and that going through the suffering, it's not always a, a great feeling. I mean, it's going to be difficult. You're going to experience adversity. It's going to be painful. It won't feel good. Uh, and I think unless you've gone through this journey and you've, you've kind of, uh, you know, I guess through that action, you've achieved happiness or fulfillment or whatever it is in just that process itself, I think many people can associate what doesn't feel good as being the thing that they should not be doing. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's the fact that it doesn't feel good that makes it meaningful, right? Like, and I think this is this is an argument I make in my my second book, which is that um, by making like by the by making modern life so comfortable, so safe and comfortable, and um, and kind of like emotionally insulated, um, we actually remove our ability to to find meaning. Like if you think about like what are the most meaningful moments in your life, or like what are the things that you're most proud of in your life. 
there's not a single thing that you're proud of that didn't require some degree of struggle or sacrifice. Like it's, it's a one-to-one relationship. Like there's, <laughs> you know, it's like nobody was like given a Ferrari for their birthday. And they're like, man, I'm really proud of that Ferrari. It's like, you didn't do shit. <laughs> you know, it's like you take be, humans, it's just human nature. Like when things are given to you without any sort of sacrifice, you take it for granted. You don't appreciate it. And then it's the things that you struggle incredibly for that end up being the most meaningful things in your life. And so um, by like trying to insulate ourselves from any sort of struggle or hardship, the psychological side effect of that is that we tend to have more struggles with finding meaning or finding things that uh, you know seem purposeful. Now, this isn't to say that we should all go back to like living in poverty and like killing each other. It's just to say that this is this is a side effect of the comforts of modern life, is that like you know, the same way a side effect of having the freedom to live wherever you want or work in any career you want is the stress and anxiety that comes with making the right choice. You know, the side effect of being safe and comfortable is that you don't have as many opportunities to to feel that that sense of meaning that comes with sacrifice. And it almost said, an idea that to truly be happy, one must also be in a state of constant struggle. I mean, I, I saw something you posted the other day where it said that the meaning your goals provide when you're working towards them is the meaning that is taken away once you achieve them. Uh, if you could elaborate on that. Totally. And I experienced this hard, you know, when my book took off and became a bestseller and everything, like it actually, like I was probably the most depressed I had been since I was a teenager simply because I didn't know what the hell to do. Like, (laughs) I'm like, okay, what now? You know, like it's, I had this, this goal kind of this dream of like becoming a best-selling author. And in my head, I thought, you know, I was like, all right, I'm going to be writing books into my forties and fifties and I'll, I'm going to like build up a reputation and a core group of, of readers. And, you know, maybe in like 10, 15 years, I'll, I'll get there. And it happened in like three months. And I spent like the next six, like sitting around wondering what the hell to do with myself. Like my, my whole vision of my future and my identity was like kind of wrapped up in this, this long-term goal. And, and as soon as I got it, which was great, don't get me wrong. Like I, I just felt very lost. Um, so it's, I mean, what, what you said is totally true and that a, a prerequisite for happiness is a constant source of struggle. And like, this isn't, it's funny because again, if you look outside the realm of emotions, like this is, this is just like an obvious thing in other aspects of, of life. Right. So it's like a health, like to have a healthy body, you have to constantly put, put it through stress and strain to have a healthy career. You have to consistently surmount and overcome challenges. Like if you're, if you're working in a firm and like, you're literally not accomplishing anything, like obviously you're not going to be promoted or you're not going to be given more responsibilities. So it's like in every other aspect of life, like we just understand it as obvious that you need struggle to progress. You need struggle to remain healthy and happy. But for some reason, when it comes to kind of our emotional life, you know, we have this weird expectation that we should just be able to be happy. Like we shouldn't have to deal with anything. In episode 98, I sat down with Andre Norman, Harvard University fellow, renowned keynote speaker, and the founder of the Academy of Hope, a violence reduction program that has transformed the cultures of some of the most dangerous prisons in America. He's also the best-selling author of Ambassador of Hope, turning poverty in prison into a purpose-driven life. 
One of the most memorable moments from our conversation was when Andre elaborated on what his experience was like behind bars. Maximum security prison is a whole nother world. It's scary. There's no other way to describe it but scared. First time in, you should be scared to death. People get raped. People get beaten. People get stabbed. People get murdered. People get tortured daily across this country. So when I got there, I was scared. They called me down to the unit team, and a nice caseworker sat me down and said, hey, you can go get your GED. You're going to have to drive a forklift. You can do all this other stuff, and you can make your time work for you. So at 1 o'clock, I'm lining up to go to school. And Dominic and the guys pulled up and like, where are you going? We're going to the yard. I'm going to school. I'm about to get my GED, my forklift degree. And they're like, oh, you got the white lady story. What are you talking about? He said, you see them guys over there? They remember this white gang. When they find out that you're a loner, they're going to run up on you. They're going to beat you, rob you, and who knows what else. Do you think the caseworker's going to come help? You see them guys over there? They're going to come beat the shit out of you. You know why? Because you're a loner. You see the CO? He's going to have no respect for you. You know why? Because you're a loner. So you got a choice. You can go with the caseworker who's not going to help you, or you can come roll with us, and we're going to hold you down and make sure you're safe. I took your little handbook, flipped it in the trash, grabbed me a knife, and I went out to the yard. I didn't look back. In that moment, it's interesting, because knowing now what, what you know, if, if you could go back to that point, was that true? Those are the only two options? Yeah. <laughs> Going back right now, unless I had some Mike Tyson skills, it wouldn't even make a difference because you outnumbered. So going back right now, if you put me back in that same unit at the same time, even with all the skills I have now, I'd have signed up. Because you can't beat the mob, whether it's white, black, or Spanish. One man can't beat 20. I don't care how good you fight. So looking back at that particular situation, day one in the penitentiary, I'm signed up for the gang again. 100% no blink. Because that's how you're going to survive. You can't go to school if your jaw's wide shut. I'm saying you can't go to school, I'm saying, if your head's split open. You're not going to forklift class if you got holes punched in your chest. It's not going to work. So you have to be safe before anything can actually transpire. And safety comes from being involved in that gang. Yeah. And now through the years when you're in, in prison, just kind of, so you have, you have goals, right? I mean, out of 20,000 people, you, you've got up to what, two, number three? I got the number three. Number three. Why number three? I mean, I know I asked earlier, but just, you know, why not in the top 10%, top 20%? Like, why, why become the regulator? I'm an entrepreneur, and I believe in winning. I've never signed up for anything that I want to be number two. That's not American culture, where you sign up and want to be third place. <laughs> the goal is to win. And in that space, wanting to be the ultimate winner, the toughest, most feared guy on the planet is a gang leader who runs the entire prison system, the ultimate shot caller. That's the number one guy. In politics, it's the president. It's not the governor. The number one politician is the president. The number one person in the penitentiary is a shot caller. The shot caller, not a shot caller. And I was like, I want to be the shot caller. And that was the goal. I want to be the top of the list. And I went on that quest, and I made it from number 20,000 to number three. Then I had an opportunity to become number one. Because, again, it's about how much work you put in, how much violence and carnage you can inflict. When I got a chance to be number one, I just had to hurt a couple more people, and I was there. And before I could do it, I had an argument with God. And God said, don't do this life choice. And me and God argued, but he won the argument. The way I explain it to people, it's like when Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz got to the end of the road, and she wanted to get the tin hard and all the rest of the stupid stuff, she pulls the curtain back, and the wizards are fake. 
When I got to the end of the road and it was my chance to be the wizard, I pulled the curtain back and then I saw for what it was. It was all fake. It was like make-believe. This champion of champions is not champion of nothing. It's all made up. And I saw for what it was and God helped me realize that um, I picked a bad path and he was giving me another one. And this is a crazy thing about the Wizard of Oz. Nobody in Oz cared that the place was fake. Think about it. Nobody in Oz cared that the whole place was fake. They just were content to live in their little section of Oz and just keep going. So in this moment, like this, this epiphany, like was this just like one day, one night, something one where it's afternoon, like, that's it? Clear. It came clear that I was about to become the king of nowhere. Boom. I'm about to become the king of nowhere. And I didn't want to be the king of nowhere. So I, I backed up. I went to my cell. I said, well, if I can't be a psychopath, what's the point of being in prison? It didn't make sense. Prison always made sense to me. That's why I was 100% all in, because I could rationalize it in my brain that this makes sense. I got this goal of being the number one guy. I'm, that goal is now gone. It's removed. I don't want to be the number one guy, because I see it for what it was. I said, well, first time, six and a half years. I said, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. It doesn't make sense to me anymore. So I said, well, I want to be free. Never said that before. Never even thought it. And I looked around at the white guys, the black guys, the Spanish guys. I looked at the guys who worked in the kitchen, the guys who went to church, the guys who went to the mosque, the guys who worked in the kitchen, the guys who worked out on the yard, the basketball players, the chess players, the philosophers. They all got free, and they all came back. Free doesn't work. So I said, I don't want to be free because it doesn't work. That's when I said, well, what do I need to do to not come back here? I said, if I'm successful, I won't come here. I said, successful people come from college. I'll go to college. I'll be successful. And I won't come back. I had to pick a school. So I picked a school called Harvard University. And I picked Harvard not because it's the biggest school on the planet. It's 20 minutes from my house. I used to ride my skateboard there. So I came out my cell the next day. I told the fellas, yo, get together. Check this out. They said, what's up? I said, I figured it out. I said, I'm going home. I'm going to Harvard. I'm going to be successful. And they looked at me. I said, no, no, no. I'm going home. I'm going to go to Harvard. I'm going to be successful. Now, they wanted to laugh at me. But I had a habit of stabbing people. <laughs> so nobody laughed. Then one of my homies pulled me to the side and said, yo, Dre, what's up with this Harvard stuff? And he told him, you can't go to Harvard. I said, why? He said, you're black. I said, I know that. He said, you're a criminal. I said, I know that. He said, you're a gang member. I said, I know that. He said, you're in the hole for trying to kill eight people. I said, I know that. He said, you was talking about killing seven people yesterday. I said, yeah, I know that. He said, you can't read that good. He just kept telling me all the reasons I couldn't go to Harvard. And what I was hearing well, my friends from the ninth grade stealing my trumpet. I was like, dude, fall back. Call my mom, call my dad, call my grandmother. And I realized I was on my own. So I stood in the mirror. And I said, what's inside of me that's stopping this dream from happening? I'm done blaming other people. Because up until then, I blamed everything or everybody for what happened in my life or didn't happen. I said, what's inside of Andre Norman that's stopping this from happening? And I sent it up. I made a list. I started working on my list. I got my GED first. Then I started going to anger management classes because I had a slight anger management problem. Then I went to the law library and taught myself the law. I became a jailhouse lawyer. I reversed my case on appeal. And I started going to self-help groups. I started going to programs. I started writing my own book. I started doing everything I could to better Andre to put myself in a position to be successful. Then I went to the parole board, and the first time I went, they told me no. Walked in, they heard my story, heard my pitch, they said no. And instead of being the angry black man, which is who I used to be, I asked him, I said, why did you say no? 
They say, you know something? Usually we, we don't tell people. And they told me why they said no. I had an understanding. I went back and I worked on their list. When I came back the next time, I won my parole. Then November 15th, 1999, I walked out of prison with a GED and a goal. Prison Parole Office Youth Center. I started talking to little black kids who looked just like me not long ago, telling them, you're going to jail not because you're black. You're going to jail not because you smoke weed or carry a gun. Somebody let you down. They haven't been there for you, and it hurts. And you act out. At 8 and 9, it was cute. At 14 and 15, it's criminal. Let me show you how to heal yourself internally and deal with your trauma. Then you can live a great life. Started with black kids, then started with black girls, then with Spanish kids, then they asked me to go to the white school. I'm like, white kids ain't got no problem. This is their country. They own everything. I went to a white school. They drink at the white school. They do drugs at the white school. They have bullies at the white school. They had fat kids at the white school. That was crazy. All the shows I grew up watching, white kids had it fixed by the end of the half hour. So to walk into a privileged suburban school and these kids had problems, it was too much for me. I was like, wow. They got jacked up lives just in a bigger house. And I realized being 15 was tough no matter where you came from or what you look like. So my philosophy became, if you call me, I'll show up. No more screening or check the box. You call me, I show up. And for 22 years, I've been showing up. And it almost seems like you were, you were a man on a mission of wanting to either pay it forward or with all the speaking you're doing and working with youth and, and so on. Why approach it that way? Like what in you, rather than just focusing on Andre and saying, let me just worry about myself, why, why want to influence others? When I wanted to change my life, Natan Schaefer, who was a Jewish chaplain at the prison, when nobody else would come within 100 feet of me, this man sat with me and he coached me and he educated me he taught me respect. He taught me accountability. He taught me how to be human. Of all the people I met prior to Natan, nobody had taught me how to be human. They taught me how to crush, kill, destroy, not cry, handle the pain. They taught me it's not the one who inflicts the most pain, but who can endure the most pain, who wins. All this madness they taught me. He taught me to be loving. He taught me to be caring. He taught me that I was a vessel of good. And then the people who fed into me, even though I didn't deserve it, there was a CEO named Rob Henderson. He let me into the anger management block. When people didn't want to come near me because of my status, he gave me a shot. He said, man, moving the anger management block, I think it'd be good for you. And he let me in. He took some heat for it, but I went in there and I crushed it. I was in the block for probably like three months. And the first time in the history of this program, they went to the warden and said, can we hire this man? He's that good. They said, you can't hire prisoners. <laughs> but Rob Henderson gave me a shot. Natan gave me a shot. Sister Ruth and Sister Kathleen gave me a shot. There's a guy named Pat Dempsey, a Catholic volunteer, used to come in every week and sit with me. And he gave me a shot. There were so many people who gave me a chance when I was technically undeserving. And so when I got free, when I got loose, and I got on my path to success, I'm going to tell you the one thing Natan taught me. Of all the things, success is not a success without a successor. So if you're not helping somebody else become successful, you're not successful, you're just lucky. And I took that to heart. So my goal is to help people be successful. What their success that they want is not relevant to me. Just get there. Stay alive and get there. In episode 105 of the podcast, I sat down with Jason Hare, one of the most highly regarded documentary filmmakers living today. In fact, one of his most notable projects includes the Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls documentary series, The Last Dance, which earned them an Emmy for Best Director. 
While many of us are familiar with and even fans of The Last Dance, during our conversation, Jason shared that the final product was quite different from the original vision. July of 2016, Mike Tolan, the executive producer, came to me and told me about the project. And they already had a deck made for the project. At that point, it was outlined to be eight episodes. One of the final pages of that deck had 10, this was four distributors, because they were still deciding who was going to air this thing, who was going to buy it. And it was to prove to distributors, we have some big names here. So the final page was 10 potential directors. And it was like Peter Berg, Spike Lee, my friend Ezra Edelman, who did the OJ doc. Ezra was by far the least known person on that page. And I'm looking at Mike like, what am I doing here, man? Like, <laughs> no one can even pronounce my name if they see my name on a paper, but they certainly don't know who I am. So I felt like it was like they got no, they got, 10 no's, and then they started going through their Rolodex, and they finally got to the H's, and they said, all right, let's call Jason Hare. I think that's where the little brother in me came out. All right, good. I'm going to show you that I can do it as well or better than, than these people. Who knows if that's true or not? But the competitor in me, the little I turned into the eight-year-old in my backyard playing wiffle ball at that point, wanting to prove to my brothers that I can play with them and their friends. That's what those directors, those 10 guys on a page, that's what they were to me when I saw that. So I went into kind of bunker mode for two weeks and wrote out a 14-page outline of what I thought the eight episodes should be. That made its way to Jordan's people and some execs at the NBA. And then I had a meeting with them. And they said to me, do you think that this can be eight episodes, wall to wall, just the footage from 98, no interviews. And I said, no. And that's when I thought this is not going to happen because I can't tell them yes, because it won't work. As bad as I want this job, it will not work. We need current interviews from people. And I think this should be about more than the 98 season. We should use the 98 season as a lens to examine that era. So it was very cordial. We've all had meetings where it's like, oh, you shake hands. You say, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch. And like, it went fine, but I probably won't hear from them again. And I called Mike and said, like, I need to re-articulate what I wanted to articulate to them because the meeting ended before I thought it would. And he said, all right, they'll be in town again and, and I'll set something up. So he did and he wasn't there. And there is an assistant who gave me an address for this second meeting I was going to have with them. This is now at the NBA headquarters. And it was one of those like soupy hot New York City days, cloudy, about to thunderstorm. 96, high humidity, and I'm in a suit with no tie because I wanted like, this is the first time I met these people in person now. They transposed the numbers on the address of the building. So I ended up about 12 blocks down Fifth Avenue from where I should have been and showed up after sprinting in that weather. <laughs> and, and I'm a sweater anyway, in you know winter clothes basically. Got to that meeting 15 minutes late and I didn't realize that they were told, Jason wants to present something to you. All I wanted was to continue the conversation in person. And I figured as long as they're there, I'll just be in this meeting and say hello. And when I'm called upon, I'll speak. Luckily, I made a bunch of notes to myself on my phone on the way up in the Uber. Because if I didn't do that, I would have had to improvise a speech. Because I got there and if I moved, I was going to start pouring sweating. <laughs> And they said, take off your jacket. If I took off my jacket, it looked like I had just jumped in the Hudson River. And I said, no, I'm good, I'm good. I'm chugging water, trying to cool my body temperature down. And now I have eight sets of eyeballs turned at this big boardroom table saying, okay, why'd you call us here? I'm thinking, I didn't 
call you here. <laughs> you invited me to this meeting. But then we just had a really honest discussion about, I was saying to them that I, I thought that this could be more than just the 98 season. And that was kind of a pivotal moment. But that was, you know, August of 16. They had to, internally, between the NBA and um, the Jordan brand and this production company, they had to decide how they were going to divvy up their pie of the back end of this project. And I wasn't privy to those conversations because I was just going to be a hired gun as a director. So I went off and did Andre the Giant during that. But all the while, on the way over to Paris to shoot in Andre's village, I was reading Michael Jordan books. All the while, I was researching the entire time when I was juggling these other projects, just in the hopes that it would be necessary at some point. So it wasn't until September. I know the date. I'm good with dates for some reason. But this was two days before my birthday, so it was September 27th, 2017 is the first time that I, I was on my way to the gym and I got a call from Michael's manager and she said, how soon can you be up in Midtown? Michael's at this hotel and I have him. It wasn't like he wanted to meet me. I think he, he did not want it. He wanted nothing to do with it. But she said, I have him here. Come up, have a drink and leave. I just want him to meet you and get comfortable with you. So quickly like threw something on got in an air-conditioned Uber this time, did not jog up. And that was the first time that I met him. But that was well over a year after I had started researching this thing. And then we didn't roll cameras until June 26, 2018. So it was a very, very long, it was almost two years of research before we first started filming the project. Did you ever, I mean, whether it was from Michael or from anybody else, in just in the making of The Last Dance, was there ever anyone that was like, Jason, don't fuck this up, or like try to exude almost like creative control, or did they say, hey, we trust you, do your thing? Oh, there was, uh, not from Michael, but I mean, we had by far the most difficult aspect of the making of that doc was navigating the notes process and the feedback and the perceived ownership of the four entities involved. So you have Netflix, ESPN, the NBA, and the Jordan brand, each of which on their own is a multi-billion dollar brand and each of which is not used to having to compromise with anybody for something that they feel like they own. The NBA, I'm sure, felt like he's an NBA player. This is all of our footage. We own this. Netflix, I'm sure, thought we paid for this thing. These guys are making this for us. We own this. ESPN, I'm sure, thought we also paid for this, and we're the first ones on board. We have the NBA contract for X billion dollars. We own this. And then Jordan's people are thinking, Subtract Michael from this thing and there's no dance. Like, nothing's happening. So everybody felt that they were owning it. So that was really difficult was to, to have people agree on something and then get in a phone call immediately after a meeting with someone saying in my ear, yeah, I know you said that, but you know you got to do this, right? And then to have someone call me five minutes later and say the exact opposite. I know you said that, but you have to do this instead of that. It was very, very difficult to know who my boss was a lot of times. And did you, did you ever anticipate what it would turn into? Like, I mean, I imagine going into it, you, you obviously wanted to put your heart and soul into it, wanted it to be good, but could you, did you ever imagine it'd be regarded as probably one of the best sports documentaries ever? The short answer is no, of course not. And, and the longer answer is that I'm acutely aware of why it took hold culturally the way that it did, because we were also starved for original entertainment and starved for sports. At that moment, we had literally a captive audience. People were held captive in their homes or, or they agreed to be in, inside their homes. So 
I'm very proud of the way it was made, and I'm very proud of our entire team and the jobs that they did to make it what it was. I also understand that it had an exponentially larger footprint than any of us could have possibly. When I say, oftentimes people say, you can't imagine. We never could have imagined this. You never could have imagined there would be a global pandemic that would keep everybody in every country in the world inside their homes. And we happen to be doing a piece about maybe the greatest sports icon of our lifetime that the entire globe would want to watch. There's very few people that it would have appealed. That's what was so shocking to me or so intriguing. We did a ton of press during the six weeks that that show was out. And I knew if I was doing an interview with someone in L.A. and it was like the host of a morning show in L.A., they were in their living room and so was I because we're all American and we're all in our American living rooms. But then you would do something with someone in Australia and Vietnam and Portugal and London and everybody's at home. It was shocking to think like, oh my God, we can't just like turn on cricket because on the other side of the world, they're playing cricket and everything's okay. Nothing was okay. So I can't think of another subject that would have appealed to everyone in the world quite the way that Michael Jordan did during that time. So yeah, there's no way we could have anticipated the reaction it was going to have and the impact it was going to have. In working with and getting the opportunity to interview all these like high performing, really exceptional human beings, and just what has really stood out for you? I mean, I imagine it's been very inspiring. I imagine you, you learn a lot just being in the same room as Barack Obama, Elon Musk, Michael Jordan, you know, Kobe Beyond. Have there been any like certain takeaways that like that stay with you? One of the common denominators with all those people you mentioned is that they don't look back. And in my business, you want them to. So they're reluctant to sit down. You have to strap them into a chair and say, take me back to that moment in 1986 when you scored 63. What were you thinking? They're not used to doing that. When, when we were first researching the Under the Giant doc and I was being vetted by WWE, I had to go through all these henchmen and the last guy you have to meet with is Vince McMahon. So I went into his office and I was saying to him that earlier that day, the historian, librarian at WWE had brought me to this warehouse in Connecticut where all of these pieces of history, of wrestling history, are stored. As I said earlier, I'm not a huge wrestling fanatic, but people who are would be in awe of the little and big. They have the ring from the first WrestleMania there, and then they have little, like, tools and costumes and, and photos upon photos and magazines and memorabilia. There's a method to the madness with them, but it looks to the outsider like it's just in piles on shelves. It looks like Home Depot. And I'm sure they know how to find certain things, but it just looks like this beautiful menagerie of all of these wrestling history all in one room. And I said to him, do you know how much you could monetize that? Do you know that people would come from far and wide to walk through that museum? And he said, I never think about it. I ne I'm just always thinking about moving forward. So these people, these men and women who are or these icons to us, they're sharks. And again, this goes back to like the paranoia and fear of failure thing. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. It's a gift and a curse. It's a gift, obviously, because it's gotten them to where they are. But it's the curse is that you want these people to have the, the pleasure of sitting back and reflecting on what they've done to get where they are and to take pride in that and to express pride in that and then to maybe offer up some wisdom about how they did it, you know? So to sit these people down, it's almost cathartic sometimes is that they enjoy it. Once they know they're strapped in and they have to look back, and they can almost become wistful because they don't get a chance to do that that often.
In episode 112 of the podcast, I sat down with the leader of the largest female-founded law firm in America, Jan Dills. Jan's road to success was by no means an easy one, and one of my favorite moments from our conversation was hearing about the, let's say, exciting start to her legal career. Well, in the middle of law school, I married my husband. We've been married 29 years. I ended up having to stay in, in my hometown, of a little town of Parkersburg, West Virginia. So at that point, corporate law wasn't part of the program. So I had to change gears. And I went to work for a local attorney, a brilliant criminal attorney, also had a PI practice. And then I was admitted to the bar in October. Shortly thereafter, he was, um, had to take a leave of absence. And it was supposed to be three months. Ended up being a year. And his deal was, here are my cases, hundreds of, of criminal cases. I'll pay your rent and you can stay here and run the business as long as you keep my cases alive. And that's what I did. Well, wow. okay. So then what was going through your, your head at the time? You're now officially a lawyer and, and now here's all these different cases that, to take on. You're kind of, in a way, you're on your own. Right, I'm on my own. So no salary at that point. He said, sorry, I can't pay you. He had already been paid for his cases. I wasn't getting paid there. I got on the court-appointed list. I um, started taking divorces and real estate law, that kind of thing. And just, I was the only one there. I, I basically ended up hanging my shingle and didn't want to, but it was the best thing for me. And within days of being admitted to the bar, I was arguing a case in front of the state Supreme Court. So then in having worked in all these different practice areas, what led you to gravitate towards social security disability? It really was a fluke. I was just sitting there and we're, you know, trying to pay the bills. I was three months behind on my uh, house payment because I thought I was going to have a, a decent salary. And one employee was left from his practice. Everybody else had left. And there was one employee, Alice, that stayed for free, by the way, because I couldn't pay her. And she said, we're getting all these calls for Social Security because he had, at one time had a huge uh, Social Security practice. She goes, you just start doing these cases. And I said, I don't know how to do those. And she's like, well, you're learning everything from scratch. <laughs> What's the difference? And so she goes, I'll teach you. So I, we started taking them. And by the time a year was up, I had over 100 cases because it, then it was word of mouth. Once I took one case um, and started working on it, it brought back memories for me. When I was about 12 years old, I went to the Social Security building with my aunt, who was sick, and she wasn't able to work anymore. And I remember going in into the waiting room there and, and sitting there with her and watching her just not be treated very well. And I still get emotional about it. And that just kind of clicked with me when I said, when I started taking my first case and started going through it, I'm like, this is what she was doing. This is the process. Because they didn't teach social security law in law school. When I got out and started doing that, I just knew, I knew that's what I wanted to do. First case. And then, you know, when you went off on your own, I think this was in, in 94, realizing, I think, I guess, Social Security, it had to be a volume practice. I mean, how did that influence how you would, would, right. would run the practice? I hadn't been around anybody who had done it. I had a lot of people, you know, other attorneys asking me, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, you know, I was doing everything to pay the bills. And so, you know, Social Security, there's such a lag. At that time, there was four years from the time you take a case to the time you go to a hearing. It was a four-year weighing process at that point. It's now two, but then the attorneys would be like, 
how are you going to make money at that? Because you know, the fee was capped at that point, and it, it still is, but it was much smaller. And, and, you know, and I just knew from my business background that it had to be a volume practice. And you had to do things real efficiently. It's not, it's not like a PI practice where their profit margins are so much better, but it was definitely a practice that you had to be efficient and you had to do a volume. And with volume, I guess, comes advertising. And I imagine there's not a whole lot of that going on in, really nationwide, and especially in, in West Virginia at the time. That is uh, completely correct. So back in, you know, talking about 94 and early 95, the phone book rep came in and the back of the phone book was available and I bought the back of the phone book. Um, had no way of paying for it. I couldn't even pay for the secretary that was you know, outside my door. But he came in and I was like, this is the way it needs to be. And because to you can't, if it, no one knows you or has heard about you, and I just came out of law school, then how do they know what you do? And then I guess shortly after the phone book, I guess the, uh, the other advertising starts to pick up. I imagine you start to, to, to gain some traction and start to see some success there. Did that kind of lead you to, to start to invest more and more in advertising? It did. I started with the phone book. Of course, I came from a car dealership. So my dad was big on advertising, and so I was familiar with the, you know, the traditional advertisers, the TV, radio, and newspaper. So when I started after the phone book, and then I would move, I moved in 97, I cut my first commercial. That's when I really realized the power of it. And I guess a, a prevalent theme across your life is, is really not taking no for an answer. Today, I know you have that also like trademarked and there's the jingle. And I'd love to hear about the origin of the jingle because I think that that yeah. played a very important role in, in the growth of the firm. Jandil's attorney at law. She won't take no for an answer. You tried to collect, but you were denied. The jingle that I have is not the original jingle. It's like the fifth jingle, by the way. I went through four jingles and I just didn't like it. And it just wasn't me and it was just hokey. And I thought, not that this, this isn't hokey, but so this person that formulated this jingle sat down and talked to me and said, well, tell me about your life. And I would just went around and, you know, I just, we had a long conversation about how I got here, the perseverance coming through. You know, with my my dad's a wonderful human being, but he motivated me without knowing he motivated me. So just applying to law school, saying, yeah, you'll never get in, and going back before that, many times where he would just say, you can't do that. And then that would just motivate me more. So when I was talking to the, to the gentleman, that's how that came about. And, and even with a jingle, I, I don't know what you thought about jingles in general, whether that would work or not. Um, from what I recall, you were even reluctant to even take that meeting. I think you, you did it as a favor. I did. I, so the reason I did the jingle was a friend of mine went to school with him. It was a radio rep. He thought, hey, this would be a great idea. I'm like, I'm already getting a lot of flack from my peers about being on TV. You know, last thing I wanted to do was put a jingle on top of that. But good family friend, I said, I'll, I'll take the call. And once I did that, I started seeing the value and I had to put away the, the fear of being different and putting myself out there. And once we created it, I knew it was the right jingle. What do you think about it made it so successful? I don't know, but I, can, I wish I did know what was the secret sauce to that jingle. But I have generations come to me singing that jingle. It's just, you hear it once and it doesn't leave you. It's such a common saying, won't take no for an answer. It's just such a common saying. And then seeing in that, in that long, drawn-out 
tone, I think, is part of it, and it's just easy to remember. Jan Gill's attorney at law. She won't take no for an answer. In episode 141, I sat down with the one and only David Goggins, retired Navy SEAL, ultra-endurance athlete, and the New York Times bestselling author of Never Finished, Unshackle Your Mind, and Win the War Within. But David's journey to becoming the game-changer he is today was filled with hardship and adversity. In fact, he's described his upbringing as a front-row seat to a horror movie. And can't hurt me, my mom was like, you're not going to put some of my life in this. But over a period of time, I'm like, mom, this, this just wasn't your fucking life. I was a young kid watching you go through this shit. I was living it with you. And I didn't have the brain to absorb the adult life that you put my childlike brain in. So I lived it even more than you lived it. So I had to get my mom to a point where she didn't even let me go here. So what I mean by that is I watched my mom and I was able to put all of my horror to the side because when you're watching your mom go through horrific things, and I was never sheltered, it wasn't like my mom kept me from like my soon-to-be stepdad got murdered. It wasn't like she said, oh, we got to keep this from David. People tried to kill him several times before they finally killed him. And we continued going to this man's house. They tried to kill him in the garage that, you know, that, that they finally shot him and killed him in. We were still going to the house where this man, they, they attempted to kill him. And we were going there almost every weekend. My mom just didn't give a fuck. You know, and watching her get beat by my father. And then slowly watching her evolve into this woman who marries a guy that literally choked a woman to death and was in prison. And I'm watching all this shit unfold. And it was like watching a horror flick. And I was front row. Shit, I was the fucking, I was part of the fucking director's crew. I mean, that's how close I was to the whole thing, man. It was, it was crazy. You state that when you're living in hell, the only way to find your way out is to confront the devil himself. You know, who, who was that right. devil for you? It took several years for me to figure out who the devil was. And the devil was my father. The devil was my father. But what I didn't put and never finished was the devil really was me. So what happened was I put all this blame. And trust me, my father and a lot of people had to do with my upbringing on how shitty it was. But like I put in that book, no one's going to come back and say, hey, man, I apologize. Maybe someone does. Very few people will. So at the end of the fucking day, when all things are said and done with, while my dad was the devil, and I believed that for a long fucking time, I had to, I had to confront him. And when I confronted the devil, so what I thought was the devil, I realized that I was the true devil. I was the one holding me back. I was the one looking for the scapegoat. And, you know, I was the one looking for all these ways to say, it's okay, David. You're a loser. You're a born loser, so it's okay. And I was hoping my dad was going to give me that confirmation. And he was a loser himself. But at the end of the day, when I left, I realized, well, shit, man, this on me. My dad's fucked up. My mom's fucked up. The people around me are fucked up. They're not going to save you. You got to fucking save yourself, my friend. So that's when all that reality hit me when I went to Buffalo to see my dad and all that drive home. I was like, man, this rest of your life is going to suck. It is going to suck, not because you're going to be a loser, but because you're going to fucking finally start to win. 
And winning is not easy, my friend. It's interesting how, you know, going into Never Finish, you, you, you think about how did the work ethic, how did David Goggins develop this work ethic and enter Sergeant Jack, right? Because if there was, <laughs> you know, there was no Sergeant Jack, there may be no David Goggins. Uh, if you could elaborate on how he practiced discipline in his life. Yeah, so Sergeant Jack, you know, was my grandfather. He did 37 years in the military. And it wasn't like he just did 37 years in the military, man. This man retired from the military and he pretty much made his own military. When he retired, that's when he became really hardcore. And he wore his uniform every day. When he retired, he wore that uniform every day. And I didn't know anything. You know, I was some young kid that was tortured from my family, you know, from my father. And I come in, you know, when my mom left my father, we moved to Brazil, Indiana. You know, my mom drives up and I'm thinking I'm going to get some pity party from my grandparents. And Sergeant Jack looked at me, man, like I was a brand new recruit coming off the bus, man. He didn't give a fuck about what my dad did to me. He pretty much, without saying it, was like, look, young man, there's a lot of kids out there who live like you do, who have gone through what you've gone through. Maybe not as bad, but you're not the only one. And my grass needs to be cut. My cars need to be clean. The yard needs to be raked. He taught me a lot of lessons within, within the lesson of no one really gives a fuck. You have to continue to fucking live your life or you can choose to be doomed and become a statistic. Like a lot of young people who fall back on their childhood when their childhood wasn't good. He never said any of this, though. It was through his actions by not feeling sorry for me, by how he worked me like a dog, that it came to me that this is what life is. Life is a, it's a training ground. And like going through Buds and Ranger School, very few people make it through. While you may live a long life, it doesn't mean you fucking graduated at the top of the class. You just lived a long, boring, despicable life. And that's not what I wanted to do. So Sergeant Jack started me out young, and I had to learn these lessons on my own through the discipline of hard work and cutting the grass and raking the leaves and doing all these things before school and after school. And he just built a mindset in me that I was like, okay, one day I can fall back on this. But I realized that Sergeant Jack taught me something that I'm going to have to go back to for the rest of my life. And it seems like there's like a correlation between someone's level of discipline and, and, the, and the standards they set for themselves. There's a, there's a quote in the book when you say that when a half-assed job doesn't bother you, it speaks volumes about the kind of person you are. And until you start feeling a sense of pride and self-respect in the work you do, no matter how small or overlooked these jobs might be, you will continue to half-ass your life. Is that like Sergeant Jack inspired? No, that was really me inspired. So, so like I said, Sergeant Jack just worked me to death. And the lessons, it wasn't like Mr. Miyagi. Like I said, he, he was my Mr. Miyagi, but it wasn't like one day I got pissed off, wax on, wax off. It wasn't like that shit. As I was doing this stuff, I started having different feelings. Like I would always like half-ass my work. And Sergeant Jack would always say, you know what? You're going to get it. You're going to do it until it's done right. So I got tired of continuously trying to get this white wall, this tiny little white wall on this black tire completely done and then when I started realizing I'm wasting my time just fucking get it done or I'm gonna be out here in this fucking garage all day and night into the next day and night and I said you know what then when I started doing it the right time you know first time every time 
Sergeant Jack never gave me like, hey, good job. He never said that. But I started feeling. I started knowing that I was doing good work because I wasn't doing it 20 times. I was doing it once. And then I started being like, my God, this feels fucking good. It feels fucking good to fucking get a job, have a task, and put my all into that task, and then be able to move on to the next task because I completed that task to the fullest and the greatest of my ability. And then that feeling just stuck with me. And I was like, okay, this is what I need every day in my life. I don't need someone to say, good job, David. I don't need a fucking pat on the back. Everything became internal. I started feeling this feeling I never had before. You know, like I thought I was a born loser. And just cleaning a tire and cleaning the car to the best of your ability changed everything. Raking a yard and not leaving one fucking leaf. Not one leaf. And then one would fall and I would get that one leaf. It just became something that was like, okay, I see dirt. Don't pass the dirt. Clean the dirt. It just started absorbing. And before you know it, man, it just morphed into a man that was like, we got to get it done regardless. And David, I want to talk about this alter ego that you created, Goggins. right? And, and I'm curious, like, what led to the creation of Goggins' alter ego? Well, discipline was huge, but then we always fall back on what's, on what's comfortable to us. What's comfortable for me was if it's easy for me, you know, I'm going to do it. And so when I was going through pararescue training, I ran up against an obstacle that I didn't think I was going to run up, and it was the water. I fucking hated the water. And, but I tried hard to get over that. And I would go to the pool and I would try and I would try, but my mind wasn't strong enough. David Goggins, even with all the discipline, I didn't have that next fucking level. When you're truly committed to something, not like where you like, you know, I want to be a doctor, but when I run into this roadblock, I don't want to be a doctor. No, I'm going to be a doctor come hell and high water. I needed that kind of commitment. And David Goggins didn't know about that commitment. I knew how to wash a car. I knew how to clean a house. I knew how to, you know, do all these manual labor jobs. But when it came down to true suffering, to the highest of suffering, I didn't have that next level of, all right, motherfucker, we have this next level. David Goggins wasn't enough. So I went into my mental lab and realized, but I want to be great. But I don't have greatness in me. So I had to create a motherfucker that was great. And in my mind, I'm really big on visualization. And people may think it's all kind of bullshit. Believe what the fuck you want. I don't give a shit. This is a true shit right here, man. I went in my mind. I said, okay, I want to look like this. I want to feel like this. And I want to have a mind that is fucking cast iron steel. That is fucking never dull. That is always fucking sharp. That was the biggest thing I wanted. I wanted to hit obstacles that fucked most people up, including myself. But I didn't waver. I didn't fear. I didn't run away. I just stayed and marinated in the fucking fear, in the suffering. And through that, building Goggins, I will become Goggins when necessary. And I started to do these things. On my own, I have my own training ground. 
I built a training ground. I wasn't Navy SEALs. If you go to Navy SEAL training not prepared, you're going to quit. So I built this training ground on my own. And I started doing these horrific things that David Goggins couldn't handle. But Goggins started slowly coming up. I started putting that visualization of the guy I wanted to create. And in that water, when things got hard and I was training on my own, Goggins would appear. Goggins would appear. When David Goggins would come up, Goggins would smack him the fuck down and say, no, motherfucker, we're going to drag you through this. And that's kind of how it happened over a period of time. This man evolved. Goggins became the guy that can withstand all kind of torture and pain and keep coming after you. And that's where that next step with uh, evolution became. In episode 151 of the podcast, I sat down with renowned hedge fund manager and best-selling author of Die With Zero, getting all you can from your money and your life, Bill Perkins. During our conversation, Bill shared the genesis of his provocative philosophy and regret minimization framework. It's a counterfactual regret minimization algorithm. So that's a fancy word for what-if analysis to solve for net fulfillment, right? Like when you play a chess computer, it's a counterfactual regret minimization solving for checkmate. Right. And so I wanted to originally write a program to tell me how much to spend and what to do each day, but there's not enough computing power in the world. But what I could do is get the mental models out that help people make the right decisions and reduce waste in their life. Right. And when I say wasting their life, I mean actually wasting their life. So my background is I started off as like assistant, assistant, assistant peon on New York Mercantile Exchange floor way back when kind of worked my way up through brokering and trading, got recruited to Texas to do over-the-counter derivatives trading in energy, particularly natural gas. Joined a fund called Centaurus. My friend started running it. It was the most successful hedge fund in the history of hedge funds. He called in rich. I opened up my own hedge fund. I made a bunch of money doing that. I've done, I got a bunch of other things, but I don't want this whole podcast, you know, I'm an old guy, right? This whole podcast, you know, would be about me. But essentially... I made my money in commodities trading. I have a bunch of other ventures and things going on in my life. And I still run my hedge fund. I have a couple of startups, a family office, et cetera. Standard stuff for a guy in my career. So then let's say someone's listening. They're saying, Bill, must be nice or easy for you to say. And you know, they're thinking about, I'd love to take my family on vacation, a nice vacation, do more trips and more time out of the office. But I either don't have the financial resources to do it or I don't have, let's say, the time in quotes to do it. So they're practicing in their mind like delayed gratification. Why do you believe that's not always the best choice? One, because delayed gratification at the extreme is no gratification. And you usually find that amongst wealthier people, not people with less means. And the other thing I would say is like, especially for people that I know or friends that don't have the money is this bullshit. Because every place I go, there's somebody doing it for one one thousandth the cost. They're watching the same view capturing the same sunset, walking on the same beach, going through the same shops and stores. They just cut a deal and got the super saver and the Airbnb special and et cetera. I think some of the most enjoyable times people had that I've seen is gap year students broke backpacking, hiking throughout Europe. Now, I'm not saying people have to go backpacking, but I actually ran an experiment. This is kind of funny, a little segue. Just, there's a thing called the coin flip trip. You can actually look it up on YouTube. I think it was part of the thirst lounge or whatever, but coin flip trip. And basically, these two guys were traveling around in different cities, and they could flip a coin and live high on the hog, and I think it was like a couple hundred dollars a day or $50 a day. And so in different cities, like they were in a very expensive city, I think in Switzerland, where they flipped low, and they came back and said their most 
rich experience, the ones they enjoyed the most were the low days when they were scrambling to make ends meet and having to interact with people and have to have favors. Now, I'm not saying you have to go to that extreme. My point is, is that no matter where I go, there is somebody with one one thousandth the means, sometimes even doing it better, actually getting more fulfillment out of the trip. And in terms of maximizing for fulfillment, whenever you talk about investments, it's investing in experiences, whereas some people may look at it and say, well, that experience is short-lived. Why is that really an investment? How can experiences have you know, a return on investment? Yeah. So when I say experiences also, I don't mean my experiences and my choices. It's, it's just another word for your choice, right? Like you may have different values. The best experience might be going to a chess tournament or playing chess or, you know, I don't tell people how to live. I tell them how to get the most out of their life according to their own values to optimize their life. And so when you have an experience, whether it be a first kiss, a game winning home run, a vacation trip, a call with your mother, you get the joy of having that experience, but a lot of the hedonic value from that experience comes later when you recall it. Like when you get together with your buddies and your friends, a lot of times you talk about things that have happened. I have friends every time we get together, we told the same stories maybe a thousand times and we enjoy it every time, we laugh about it, et cetera. And so your self-concept, your fulfillment is not only the experience itself, but also a piece of it or a dividend, what I call a memory dividend, every time you recall it and think about it or discuss it. And when you go out to dinner with new people, what do you talk about? Well, you do talk about ideas and concepts that haven't happened, but a lot of times you talk about things that have happened. And then you, that creates a new moment. So they're radioactive. They're actually compounding. And so much like investing in the bank where you get interest rate dividend, now we're actually getting an interest rate, right? Investing in experiences pays a dividend every time you recall it. And so when you're thinking about why this is important is, is when you're thinking about delayed gratification, because that's what happens, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to save money and go on two ski trips 10 years from now instead of taking one ski trip now, Right. From the, from the interest that you earn net over inflation, right? And you have to think about, is it better to have the trip now plus the memory dividend than two trips later? Will those compounding memory dividends and radioactive experiences that I have talk about it and discussing, will that enrich my life more than two ski trips later? And that's going to be a different answer depending on who you are, how social you are, all kinds of factors, right? But it's just a way to think about that problem, right? For me, at my age, there's no two ski trips later worth one ski trip now, right? Maybe if I was 20, it would be. And certain, certain experiences, depending on what type of experience we're talking about, they're better enjoyed later in life when you can understand and appreciate them, right? And so it's not that I have the answer for every single person. What I have is the methodology and the way to think about this, about, hey, do I want to delay gratification? Does that really make sense investing in these bonds or et cetera, to, in order to consume it 10 years from now? Or should my consumption be high now, given my current health, my expected death date, the decline, et cetera, right? Like when you're 40, you're losing about 1% muscle mass per year. And strength is a little bit more than that, right? So that, that changes your activities and you got to work like hell to fight that. Your lung capacity, your mental capacity, all these things happen, right? And then there's also the Tetris game of life. What's going on that will preclude me from doing that, right? Like somebody says, oh, I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. But they say, oh, I'm going to wait till later. Then they're married, they have small kids, and this happens, and there's a graduation, et cetera. And then somehow 
that just never happens, right? They get to a point where they're not physically able, they wouldn't even enjoy it. And Kilimanjaro doesn't even sound that great anymore, right? So these are the things people have to think about when they're talking about optimizing their lives. And where do you believe, I mean, if there is a balance, where's kind of the balance between investing into the future, right? Let's say putting away money. And I actually, I want to get your thoughts on like the fire movement or the fat fire movement for people listening who aren't familiar with that. It's like financial independence, retire early on Reddit, people essentially who kind of live lives of frugality to figure out what their number is to the point where they could just stop working and then go on in their mind, kind of live their life, right? But they're living their life in a way that's very much on the cheap, right? And then the fat fire movement is very similar, but they're living at large, but it's still saying that I'm trying to get to this number that when I get there, then I'll start doing all the things I want to do. Just talking about the fire movement, I like the fire guys, particularly because they understand the concept of enough. The birth of the fire movement or the mother of the fire movement is this book called Your Money or Your Life. It would be the Bible before the fire movement. And that book really gets into concept of what, what is money? And the, the universal definition they use is money is something we exchange our time for. And then two, the concept of enough, which is like you have everything that you need and you want out of life, plus maybe a little bit more, right? And so the fire people say, okay, I'm going to live as frugally as I possibly can, right? Work and save and bare bones. My ego is out of this, et cetera. And then I am going to live off the principle of my investments and the returns of my investments for the rest of my life and do whatever the hell I want, right? In the United States of America, in a place where we have a savings problem, et cetera, it's not like I hate the fire movement. I just think it's inefficient and incorrect. And here's the reason why. I use this as an example. There is no amount of money you can pay me to do 10 years in Sing Sing. Zero, right? And so maybe I would have done, you could have paid me when I was 20 to do two years, you know, a lot of money and I go out, right? But there is no money now in my life that I would pay to do 10 years in Sing Sing. And so what these people are doing, in essence, is going to a jail a jail of their own making, but a jail. And then saying, oh, when I come out, this is my reward. I'm going to get some money for doing this jail stint, right? The second thing that's wrong with it is that they're just a mathematical calculation. They build up this principle and they live off the interest and the dividends, but they should be spending down the principle as well. To the extent that they die with the principle left is hours of their life that they wasted in jail that they never get the gratification from, right? Delayed gratification at its extreme is no gratification. So they literally wasted hours and years of their lives by going in jail, right? So those are the two things I have wrong with the, with the fire movement. I think some of them have actually said, yeah, you're right. Why would I leave the principle? <laughs> you know, like I would spend on the principle. And then some of them thought like, why would I go in jail and remove all these experiences that are for this period of my life. Like there are certain experiences that are only meant or best done in your 20s. There are some that are best in your 30s and in 40s. And then that's the same for every person, but every person has them go, yeah, you're right. These are experiences that belong in this time bucket of my life. And these are the experiences that belong in this time bucket of life. And it's difficult or impossible to transfer these experiences from time bucket to time bucket. So if you take a time bucket and say, hey, I'm going to jail, all those experiences that don't transfer out, you never get them. And therefore, I'd say your life is less fulfilling. And I'm not solving for max money. I'm solving for max fulfillment. 
on Congress of that, you do make it clear in the book that like you want to live every day well, but at the same time being mindful that you know you don't want to live like every day like today's your last day, right? So just completely no, no, YOLO no. every day. No, no, no. Like it's it's that's the problem, right? That's the original problem I was thinking about. It's not like, oh, you spend all the money YOLO every day. Like the day you die, the day you're gonna die informs your behavior today. Right? You can just do the thought experiment, right? Like the day before you're gonna die, your behavior is gonna be wildly different from five years before you die, from 10 years before you die, and so on. You just integral. Like if it's one day, two days before you're going to die, if you absolutely know three days, right, your behavior changes. And so it's very important to be aware of, one, your death, and two, your physical decline, so that you allocate your spending, which is your choices, right, appropriately, right? And so, you know, I talk in the book, is like, listen, the main experience we want is to survive, right? Your survival number. And so after your survival number, so I'm not working, I got my food, clothing, and shelter paid for, the rest are choices. It's about thriving. What does thrive mean to me? And that's different for every single person. And survival is pretty much defined amongst every person. I need food, clothing, and shelter, right? What do I need to survive? And that's different if you live in Iowa City, Iowa versus Palm Springs or Atlanta, Georgia, right? Like, so you run those numbers, you run these calculations, et cetera. And then you're like, okay, now I have this pile of choices. We're going to call them choices, but it's really money, right? How do I allocate that throughout my life? What is the way to get the maximum fulfillment? Am I putting my ski dollars or my wake surfing dollars in the 65 to 75 bucket when they really probably belong here, right? Or am I riding around trains? I'm talking about myself. Riding around trains, which I love. Am I riding trains now and not doing other activities that I should be doing now? And I should really put trains in the future. Like one of the things I don't do, just in terms of like a no money decision or a low money decision, is I don't watch any series or any TV unless my wife forces me to. And people are like, why? And I was like, one, I get low value out of news or I didn't even watch the news. Right. I get my information from other sources. Like most of the stuff doesn't pertain for me. I have no way of impacting me. It's just not interesting to me. But the main reason is, is that there will be a time when all I do is watch TV, where that is my main source of entertainment is sitting in front of a screen and watching shows. And so I can't wait to watch some of these shows. Like I cannot wait to watch Big Bang Theory and, and all the Seinfeld episodes and all these shows that people say are great. I'm like, yeah, that's great. I got them all in the time bucket in the future. And now I do all the other things like going outdoors and traveling and doing the other stuff. And so that's part of the like no money allocation and optimizing of my life. And as we round out this lineup of our 200th episode spectacular, we're revisiting my conversation with Alex Hermosi, founder and managing partner of Acquisition.com and best-selling author. With his innovative approach to marketing and sales, he's guided numerous entrepreneurs to success. Entrepreneurs' businesses undergo remarkable transformations, a journey of evolution. So how did Alex's own evolution unfold? So first thing I did was I started an online training charity business so that people would pay, but then I would donate the money. And that was just kind of like get my feet wet with people giving me money, even though I didn't take it personally. Then I quit my job and asked the same people who were paying the charity if they would pay me instead so that I could like eat. I was like, I'm the charity now. And they were all good with it. From there, I started my first gym. From that gym, opened up uh, five more. From there, I had a mentor say that, you know, he was like, you're really good at running gyms. You shouldn't be owning more gyms. You should uh, kind of teach other people how to run gyms. 
And so uh, from there, we did uh, turnarounds for two years. So we'd fly out to brick and mortar gyms, kind of put all of our systems in place and turn it around in 30 days. That was kind of the, the offer. And then from there, that became really logistically painful. You know, you've got eight sales guys going out to eight different locations across the nation every single month on the road, 21 to 24 days a month, just tough for families, et cetera. And so um, by a stroke of luck, there's a million very sad stories in between here, but I was supposed to launch six or eight gyms the next month. And we had decided to pivot to go direct to consumer selling weight loss because we were, we were familiar with that. And I told the gym owners that we were supposed to launch that I wasn't going to do it. And one of the guys was like, hey, could you just show me what you're doing rather than flying out here? And I was like, sure, how much? And I just picked a really high number and he said yes. And I was like, holy cow, that was pretty cool. And so then I told all the other guys the same thing and they were like, how much? And I just kept increasing the number and they all said it was fine. And then I called all the gyms I did the turnarounds for and said, remember that thing I did? Can I just license the model to you? And they were like, yeah, that's fine. And so um, that's when we got into licensing. That was 2017. Uh, that was like May, April, May of 2017. And then it took off like a rocket. And so then, uh, you know, 5,000 locations later, <laughs> That's where Jim launches today. We started a supplement company in between there to sell through that distribution base. So that was e-commerce. And then we started Allen, which is a software company that worked leads for brick and mortar businesses. That was the next year after that, all selling through that same audience. And then in 2021, in December, we sold two of those companies. So Jim Launch and Prestige Labs to American Pacific Group, which is a private equity group out of San Francisco. And we sold that for 46.2. And then we sold the software company for an undisclosed amount to strategic buyers. So we sold 75% of that uh, in an all stock deal. And so uh, from there, we started our family office, which is acquisition.com, which we started the day after we sold. And uh, now we have, I think, 11 portfolio companies. And I know you, you've worked with many, many different founders. I mean, in, in all sorts of different businesses, services-based businesses, software, I mean, the, the full gamut. Like, are there any particular traits that you've seen in the, in the most successful founders that kind of separate the most successful from the least successful? Yeah, they're humble. If you have humility, you can do a lot. Because if somebody's humble, then they can accept feedback. And if they can accept feedback, then they can change. Basically, if someone doesn't have humility, then it means that whoever they are day one has to be the person that they need to be at day 1,000. Because if they can't admit a deficit, then they can't improve. And so humility is by far the biggest one. Beyond that, it's they have to have drive. They have to have some reason that they're going to do it, whether it's away from fuel or towards fuel, like they have to have some sort of drive. There's a big study on this that I've been quoted a lot for, even though it's not my study. <laughs> It's, you know, the three most common traits that they've seen, you know, it's not the early wake up time. It's not the healthy eating. It's not the cold plunges or the affirmations, but the, the three common traits were that they had a superiority complex. So they believe that they can do big things. They want to chase after big goals. The second is that they have crippling insecurity and that they feel there never be enough and that they have impulse control. And so if you have a big goal and you have big fuel and you don't stray the path and you do it for a very long period of time, you'll probably win. Yeah. It's almost like, I think there's a book, it's called like the manic edge to a degree. It, it, it's like, you almost have to be crazy in a sense. I mean, you, you think about entrepreneur and the idea of starting a business, the risk that you take on. I mean, obviously, I mean, I think Shark Tank maybe has popularized this to an extent, but when you look at the reality of it, it's not always a great proposition. I think now with a lot of like social media culture, it's this idea of working remotely from your laptop. Everybody's making 40 grand a month. I don't know why, why people get stuck on this number, but it just, I don't know that it really depicts an accurate portrayal of, of what this journey is. I think the average small business owner takes home like $50,000 a year. I mean, the average small business owner makes the same as the median household income. So from that sense, it's one person versus a household. So I guess in that sense, they have to make a little bit more money. They also take on significantly more risk personally in order to do that. So I, I agree with you. I think that the, I think right now it's in vogue. It's cool. I mean, it is the way to make the most money. It's also the way to lose the most money. So <laughs> at definition, the, the, the highest risk, highest reward game, but you know, it's a quote Warren Buffett. I think the reason business is so risky is because people don't know what they're doing. And that's kind of the nature of it is that when you start, you're ignorant. 
biggest debt you pay is the tax of not knowing, right? You're not knowing what you do. He also says that it's, it's only risky if you don't know what you're doing. And so once you do know what you're doing, then there's not nearly as much risk in business, but the only way to know what you're doing is to get in the game, which means you have to incur lots of risk to get in. And then the more you play, the better you get and the less risky it is and the higher reward is. Yeah. It's like in, in many cases, it's like the, uh, the solutions making good decisions. How do you make good decisions, experience, how do you gain ex experience, bad decisions yeah, and, right. you know, and the cycle repeats. You know, Hopefully something you said, people's bad decisions to throw that yeah, in. which is ultimately the goal, right? Which is where right. the, certainly the, uh, the, the humility comes in. Something you shared before that I, I thought was very interesting is just the differences between how the most successful people view time and their approach to the time horizon. If you could elaborate on that. You can pretty easily tell how successful an entrepreneur is by looking at two elements of time. One is the increments of time they speak in. So if they talk in decades, they talk in multiple decades, they talk in lifetimes, they talk in generations, I can almost guarantee you it's going to be significantly more successful entrepreneur than the one who talks about next week, next month, even next quarter. And it's such a small thing, but it's, it's pervasive. Like you can hear it in conversation. You can immediately know, oh, this guy's only doing this much because the only way to do really big things is to think on a much longer time horizon. The second component is how they manage the micro, which is if you look at someone's calendar and how they allocate their most scarce resource, which is time, you can see where they're going to be in six or 12 months. So if you look at the calendar as the balance sheet of someone's time asset and how they allocate it, their time budget, then you will see where they're going to get their returns. And so if we look at a founder and we look at their calendar, we can tell how the company's going. We can usually see how we need to fix it because fundamentally most entrepreneurs work all the hours of the day. Most of them do, right? And so if they're not making the amount of money that they want to make, it's because they're doing the wrong stuff. And that's usually the biggest issue. And they think they need to work harder, but they've already maxed out their hours, which means fundamentally they're wrong. They're seeing a distorted reality. They think this is going to work and it is not. Are there particular things that, that you see? I mean, just even, even looking like at an entrepreneur's calendar where you're like, okay, well that you can tell right away, okay, this is not optimized or the focus isn't in the right place. Like what, what types of things stick out? Well, the single common trait that every entrepreneur has to get over over time is relinquishing control. So entrepreneurship is a continual giving up of control at all levels. And so whatever they're doing is usually the thing that they need to be able to give up and transfer to somebody else in order to get further and further above the business and get more leverage. And so in the beginning, you have to give up delivery or you have to give up selling or you have to give up promoting, you have to give up something or administrative tasks. And you look at your calendar and you say, which of these things is most easy to replace in the marketplace and is the cheapest one that I can replace. And you replace the first one that gives you the most time for the least amount of money. And then you're like, great, now I should fill my time up with the thing that makes me more money. And fundamentally that is the game is you just continue to trade up the time until you have bought all of your time back. And then you can just do all the highest level leverage activities and leverage just being defined as getting more for what you put in. Well, this is a concept that I think when people hear it, they, they probably will nod along. And yet you and I both know this. I think so many entrepreneurs struggle with it and struggle with that relinquishment of control. No one can do it as well as they can. No one can do it quite the way they do. What's the answer there? Like, how, how do you get somebody to the point where they actually start doing it? Confrontation. This is why you're poor. You can keep doing what you're doing. It's just, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. And so the question is whether you want to keep getting what you're getting or you're willing to change something. I mean, it's the same as someone trying to lose weight saying, I want to keep eating the same diet, but if I look the same, you're like, yeah. So you have a diet of time that you continue to eat or let something else eat your time every single day. And you expect the outcome to look different. And it's just not true. 
And so I think just a very logical breakdown where you have to confront it. You have to confront reality. And a lot of entrepreneurs are delusional, sometimes in a good way. You know, you have to be optimistically delusional in a certain capacity to be an entrepreneur. But a lot of times that delusion takes control and they believe the false statements that you just said, right? Which is like, no one can do it like I can do it. I'm irreplaceable, et cetera, et cetera. But like every single human on planet earth is replaced in a hundred years. And the likelihood is that if you were doing it and you're also doing other things, then somebody doing full-time what you're doing will be better than you are. And I can virtually guarantee that a hundred people doing full-time what you're doing are going to be better than you are. A lot of entrepreneurs learn the wrong lessons from experiences. So we talked about having experiences earlier, right? And you make the lesson, et cetera. But the thing is, is that most people learn the wrong lessons. So I'll give you an example. A small business owner hires the first salesperson. They're like, I'm going to give up control of sales. I'm going to give it to this person. They're going to start selling. And of course the person takes, okay. Because they also don't know how to hire, manage, recruit, train salespeople because they don't have that skill set yet either. But they bring this person on, the person fails, right? There's lots of lessons you can get from that. But one lesson that's common is that salespeople don't work, right? Or no salesperson can sell like I can, right? And so then as soon as they have that belief forever, until that belief is changed, they will not make more money. And the thing is, is there's a lot of those salesman beliefs at every single level of entrepreneurship. But the correct lesson is phrasing the thing that didn't work as deficiency personally, which is, okay, this salesman didn't work. I do not know how to, and then insert the problem, recruit, hire, train, manage a salesperson. Great. That's solvable. Let's go solve that. And then that is the process all the way up. But you have to admit it. It's like AA, right? You got to admit you have a problem. And until they do, and that's where the humility comes in, in, into play, that's what plateaus. Many entrepreneurs that they cannot admit that anyone else could do better than them. And most people could do it better than you. And I think it's a much better belief. They're like, everyone could do everything better than me. It's great. I'm not needed. And that's the point. You want to own the business, not have the business own you. It's interesting. It's like so many entrepreneurs I meet, I, you know, I don't know if this is direct correlation exists, but it seems like the more successful they are, I mean, when you really start getting up there, eight figures, nine figures, 10 figures beyond, it's like you start to see greater levels of humility. And I wonder if to an extent, and this doesn't apply to everyone, but it's always striking to me how someone can still have ego if they have built a business from nothing. And just, just the humbling process of even building an organization, the lessons you have to learn, the challenge that you experience, the pain in many cases to come out of that with ego, but yet the ones that know all the answers, have it all figured out. No, I'm good. I already read that book. I already, you know, I already heard that. Like they're the ones that seem to be struggling the most. I agree. I also think that you can have situational ego because there are definitely some very wealthy people who are very successful, who do have egos, who are self-made. Like I, I can attest to that. There are, there are also many, many, many who are very humble in general, but I think it's also domain specific. You can be humble, humble with business and, and arrogant with women. You can be arrogant with your physique, but humble. And, you know what I mean? So I think it's a little bit more nuanced overall. That being said, there's totally people who are arrogant in everything they do. But I do think that it's more domain specific. And even within the business, somebody might have an ego around how good they are at marketing, but not an ego around how good they are at HR, right? And so it really comes down to how do they associate their self-worth with something? However close the action is to the association they have with their identity and their worth, the harder it is to peel away from their grip. Like a lot of entrepreneurs who are promotional or product-driven entrepreneurs don't have any problem outsourcing finance. Like it's not like they don't have a huge thing with that, right? But they have a huge problem if someone wants to take over product or take over promotion or whatever for the business. And so it's because they just derive their self-worth from that. And so that's, that's why a lot of the entrepreneurship is a head game. I want to give a huge thank you to every guest who's joined me so far this year on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. And I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, 
Download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.